and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. When I'm not recording this podcast, I am working as a mental performance coach, which gives me the opportunity to work with elite performers in both business and sports. And I help them develop their mindset. So we focus on how each of them can set their mind to create opportunities, which allow them to win moments, maximize their potential, and hopefully enjoy success. I love what I do for a living. So I started this podcast with a simple mission in mind. How are people intentionally setting their mind to be their best? So we aim to unpack just that and bring intentional gems to you, the listener. Now, before we get started, I want to tell you a bit about how you can support the podcast. First, we would love it if you went over to our Patreon homepage, which you can find at patreon.com backslash intentional performers. And over there, you can support the podcast with a $10 a month donation. We also have an exciting announcement to make. With that donation and people that subscribe at $10 a month, they'll be entered into a drawing to attend our podcast retreat, which is happening soon. It's happening in May. We have a ton of podcast guests that will be there. Uh, We're really excited. We've got a great agenda and itinerary for the day. And the retreat will be exclusive to past podcast guests and those Patreon drawing winners. So once again, go over to patreon.com backslash intentional performers and support the show. One of the other perks of being a Patreon supporter is that you get a shout out for the show. So go over to patreon.com backslash intentional performers and support us. The other thing we would love for you to do is go over to iTunes and write us a review. We've had a bunch of people go on there and support the show that way. So that's another great way that you can help us continue to bring this to you in the best way that we possibly can. So uh, now on to today's guest. So today is somebody who is very, very close to me. So Julie Ellian is my mentor. She's the one that introduced me to the world of sports psychology. And I want to give you a little bit of a background on Julie because she's someone that definitely has has tried to stay under the radar in the work that she's done. But as you'll find in our conversation today, she's one of the best in the world at what she does. And I'm so fortunate to have her as a mentor. So Julie developed one of the premier sports psychology practices in the professional golf world. She also has worked with basketball, and I'll get to that in a minute. But she really has 
has specialized working with multiple players on the PGA Tour. That includes winners of multiple major tournaments and regular tour events, totaling over 60 wins and five majors. She worked with the 2008 U.S. Ryder Cup team in their victory, and she's also worked with four members of the 2010 U.S. Ryder Cup and four members of the 2011 U.S. President's Cup teams. So she is on it when it comes to golf and sports psychology. And if you go to a PGA Tour event, you'll probably see Julie working with one of her clients there. She certainly has made a name for herself in the golf world, but she's also provided mental coaching for athletes and teams of other sports, and both the professional and the collegiate level, including the Washington Wizards, the Washington Redskins, the Washington Mystics, and the University of Maryland men's basketball team. So here in Washington, D.C., Julie is really at the forefront of the sports psychology world. She, she founded the Center for Athletic Performance Enhancement in 1998, and her philosophy is based upon helping an individual gain insight into their sport, character, family, and relationships, and then use those insights to become a resilient athlete and a more fulfilled person. Julie is truly about the person and developing the human to help the human become a great athlete. So she integrates classical sports psychology tools like pre-shot routines, which we get to in this conversation, course management and visualization that are focused on behavioral and cognitive cues with a deeper appreciation and understanding of oneself. So once again, Julie really gets into the individual and you'll hear that today as she will always preface things by saying, for some people it works this way, for others it works that way. She really cares about her individuals and cultivates this trusting relationship that makes her a part of their team. So Julie helps to prepare her players for success by focusing on believing in themselves first as a person, which we will get into today, and second as an athlete. So Julie is someone, once again, who I'm extremely grateful to have come into my life. So I'm so excited to share Julie with you and have her come into your life as well. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you my mentor, someone who, who I really appreciate, uh, Julie Elian. Julie, ex- excited to do this. <laughs> um, we're going to get into your journey a little bit. And this is a special conversation because a lot of times I'm having these conversations with strangers and you are probably one of the furthest strangers that I've had on, on the podcast. So excited to chat with you in this capacity. And uh, I hope to learn some new things about you, uh, or at least share all of the wonderful things that I've learned from you over the years with the world. So excited to find out more. Well, personally, I'm excited to do this with you just because I've seen how you've come along and it's wonderful. It's amazing from where you started to where you are now. It's just amazing to watch you. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah, I think I think the most interesting part for me would be to start with how you even got into this and to share how you found this world of sports psychology and how that all went down. So I was always interested in psychology and that was my training in college and graduate school. And I think I'm on my 20th year and 1920, something like that. And a professional golfer came to me for marriage counseling. Him and his wife were struggling, him being on the road, him managing his relationships, and he would fly in to see me. And I was actually just learning how to play golf at the time. So they would come in once a week, and they got better, their relationship got stronger, and he invited me out on a practice round. On the PGA Tour, players do practice rounds. 
And he just liked the way I worked with him. And he won that week. So he said, you know what, let's, let's, let's do this. And I thought that's great. And I committed to him for a year. And he had a lot of great success out there. And for me, a light bulb went off saying, because I had been dealing with a lot of much more difficult issues with people and some chronic illness issues and just lots of different psychology issues. And this seemed way more positive and way more using my skill set to get people to start living their dreams and excel at what they do. So I loved it. And then one of his good friends who was a top 20 player in the world hired me. And then the whole thing snowballed. And I went back to school to study sports psychology, but the fact is I really use my initial training much more. Talk about that initial training. And it sounds like, you know, you're giving people a little bit of an idea of what you were doing before he came into your life. Just paint that picture a little bit more for us. So I did a training that really concentrated on how to work with people, how to bring out what's someone is holding in their heart, challenges they're trying to get over emotionally. It was really a training on one-on-one working with people to have them heal whatever they were carrying around that wasn't working for them anymore. So I really learned how to process what was going on with a person. And this was really one-on-one. So that is probably one of my best skill sets. And the training, I I came out of that really feeling pretty good about how I could help someone clear some of their issues and things that haunted them or past relationships or negative messages they might be holding on to. And that became very clear when I started working with athletes that that was something that they needed to deal with if they wanted to really be superstars. And what even got you to that point? Why even study that? What what was the thing before that that led you into that career path? You know, there's there's just some of us, including myself, I was the person that people came to talk to even growing up. I just had a way of listening. I had a way of asking the right questions. And it was it was my MO as a child. And actually, when I was young, I was having a lot of nightmares. And my mother brought me to a therapist. And this therapist helped me change my mindset. How old were you? I think I was 10, 11. We were moving from Detroit to California. And I started having dreams that redwood trees were going to fall on our house. I mean, it was just totally in my imagination. And this Dr. Zamorski, who I'll always remember as facilitating, you know, my deeper fears and issues really taught me how to actualize what I wanted, even as a 10 year old. And it was amazing. So I always carried that with me. And then even undergraduate, I studied psychology and I just, I, I was always fascinated in what made people tick and what they, their, what they held in their hearts, how their minds could hold them back. And and in my undergraduate work, I thought I was going to go to medical school, but then I really decided I wanted to do psychology. Ten-year-old version of you yeah. 
Were you excited to see that doctor? How like take I, me? I I loved it. I loved going. I wish I could. It was once a week. It was after school. And actually, as an adult, maybe ten years ago, I wrote him a letter. I had no idea if he was alive anymore. It might have been longer than ten years ago, but it was some. It was as an adult. I wrote him a letter and thanked him for teaching me because one thing he taught me is I could go somewhere else in my brain if I didn't like where I was in my brain. And that's a little risky to teach someone at that age, I think. You know, now that I know about human development and child psychology, I I can see that being a little risky, but I think he trusted me that I was stable enough to use those tools. And that's exactly what I'm doing now. It's so fascinating because you're talking about you've got a problem which is showing itself in nightmares. Mm -hmm. And then he is working on you to develop some tools or some skills to handle that problem. But then you, Julie, took that and sort of were inspired by it and started heading heading down your path and finding your way. Right. Um, And And it's amazing because, you know, I I talk to a lot of 20-somethings and I have a son and a daughter who's a 20-something and – you just don't know where life's going to lead you. And I was, you know, I'm always guiding them and helping them. Like, what what do you love? Like, what just really gets you going? And often that's where we end up doing something professionally. But you're right. It started probably at with this doctor at 10 years old. Meanwhile, he wrote me back. What did he, he say? He was 95 years old. Wow. He remembered so much about me. And it was just, an, I still have the letter. It's just an incredible, it, he was incredible and it was incredible. So it's amazing too. So there are two moments there where light bulb, you said light bulb goes off. So at, at 10, you start realizing, oh, this can shift or I uh, start figuring some things out. And then when you work with this golfer, uh, the light bulb goes off like, oh, this seems pretty cool. Right. What does that feel like for you? The light bulb? Yeah. Well, You know, what's interesting is with my clients today, when I see a light bulb go off in them, what I, so how I'll answer that is how I see it. It's like something just clicks and someone lines up and they feel a motivation and an enthusiasm for what they're doing. And so that happens to me. You know, we all can get tired or fatigue in what we're doing, but when I, see a light bulb go off or feel it in me because I see someone's transforming, that energizes me. Can I go back to you? So what does it feel like for you? Motivating, energizing, uh, exciting. You know, I'm one of the things, this is a little funny story that um, my daughter Who's, At, a, who's a superstar, by the way. Who's a superstar, a rock star. <laughs> Literally, a rock, rock star. star. I'm in the sport world. We call them superstars. Right. Was asking me, how do you know when you're in love? Like, how do you know it's the right person? And, of course, I gave the corny answer, but it's truly what I believe, is the person committed to their growth. And I think that's the basis of what I believe for my clients and for myself. Like, I'm always trying to learn. I'm always trying to get to know myself better and I'm I really want my clients and I am really committed to learning about oneself. So the answer to your daughter is around 
uh, is is the person looking to grow or interested in growth? Is that about the person's growth or the relationship's growth? That's a great question. I think when I answered her, I meant the person's growth. Like, are they individually committed to learning about themselves, about the world? Of course, there's a million other qualities that I'd like to see. But that's but a primary. Let's I start think with so. that. And I think that I, I think if someone's going to hire me, I think that's a quality that they, he or she needs to decide if they're willing to do. I want to go back to the relationship aspect of things though, because, um, you're focused on an individual's desire to grow and not the couple. I'm curious why you start there. Well, that's a great question too. I mean, my work with teams, it starts with the individual too. So I think that's where it starts. I think somebody has to be committed to knowing themselves. And then they bring that into the relationship. Beautiful. Working with teams, what is it like for you when you're working with teams compared to working with individuals? So I used to think my gift was really the individual, and I still think that's a gift of mine. And yet when I'm working with a team, there's something about – so I, if I'm working with a team, I work with the individuals first, but then there's a something about – unselfishness that needs to show up. So there's an irony there that I think somebody on a team has to be committed to knowing themselves and their processes and what they're committed to, but then find a way to put that shelf that a little bit and be unselfish and be committed to a greater good. That's a fascinating thought because you and I both have been around professional coaches. Yeah. People that are the best at their craft, they get to this level, yep. and so many of them don't take care of themselves physically. Um, the coaches, or the, the coaches. Players. Oh yeah, right. Oh yeah, and and we can go into any sport. Uh, you know, maybe it's a swing coach in golf, maybe it's a tennis instructor, maybe it's a basketball head coach, uh, whatever you want to say. Um, why do you think that is? I I would have to say that out of the 10 teams I've worked with, I would say every coach has said to me when I start with them, oh, you have to work with me. And I think there's an awareness of how stressful it is for them. But many of these coaches are just so committed and dedicated to their teams, but they're forgetting that one piece that it starts really with them. And I love the idea of being selfish so you can be selfless. Exactly. And But we so often hear about servant leadership and right. this notion of, well, my job is to take care of everybody else. Right. And we could take this to the CEO. We could right. take this you know, to politics. We can take right. it anywhere. But that breaks down, in my opinion. And I do work with some CEOs, and I love that they're committed because they realize that it starts with them. And it trickles down to their team, to their business and to their relationships, to their managing styles, and same with the coaches. So how do you get someone who's in a leadership position to look in the mirror at themselves and realize that if they truly want to serve, it's got to start from within? Well, usually if they've found me, there's probably no accident, and they're, they're probably curious 
in a way that they, they've decided they're at a place in their lives where they have to self-reflect more. It usually doesn't stick with me, with my clients, if they're not committed to that self-reflection. So, you know, if they've been referred by somebody else who's really done the work on themselves, then that's usually how they get presented to me. So most of my clients and my long-term clients have made a commitment to self-actualization, to working on themselves, not necessarily for their team or for their business, but really they're at a place in their in themselves that they want to feel better. What sort of tools, activities do you use to help facilitate that for them? So I, one of the things that I really believe in is a balance. And you and I both know a lot of athletes that have no balance in their lives. You know, they're, they're all their sport or um, they're just really tunnel vision. But I believe that most of the people that I work with to feel happier, more content, better relationships, it starts with a balance in their lives. So that's something we talk about a lot. You know, are they taking care of themselves? How are their relationships at home? I'm getting into this whole meditation craze, whatever you want to call it, but some kind of quiet time, self-reflection time, um, goal setting. You know, I just I just find like the holistic approach seems to work better in what I've seen with on the business side and in the sports side. And what do you, Julie, do to make sure that you're taking care of yourself? So all of the above. Uh, I definitely down, need downtime. Nature helps me for sure. Hiking or what does nature look like? Hiking, going somewhere beautiful family time. But I I have found, because my job is very strenuous sometimes, and I really need to do things that I love. So I really speak to myself about that. Like, I like to paint. So how do I paint more? But nature, like I said, and I just really encourage the people that I work with to find that balance, find things we love to do. How often will you paint? Not often enough, Brian. <laughs> I, you know, I, I do it and then I stop, but I find something else that fulfills that, you know, something creative. Anything habitual that you do uh, for sort of self-help or- Exercise. Or, okay. Eat well. Family time. Nature. Read. Friends. Dogs. And how about your clients? <laughs> like, what are some of the things- that you've found to be helpful for them uh, in that sort of self-actualization or self-reflection? You know, I'm always asking the question, what do you love to do? You know, what, what opens your heart? And that could be anything. I mean, I have a client right now who's it's very an interesting time in one's life to be doing this, but shoots guns. He goes mm. to driving ranges, you know, and you know, that, that relaxes him. So, uh, anything that just takes the pressure off that makes somebody feel, you know, that they're rejuvenating. Rejuvenating is really, really important with athletes. Recovery. Recovery. 
pressure is a big word. Pressure is a big word. You work with a lot of golfers. And I think when people observe golf or play golf, I don't care if they're playing once a month or every day, there is an element of pressure that comes with golf. How do you define pressure? How do you think about pressure? So back to the individual sport rather than a team sport, the pressure that I see out on the golf course is so self-induced and fear of failure, am I good enough, tension in the body, tension in the mind, staring at leaderboards. For some clients, staring at the leaderboard is motivating. For some, it just is that pressure comes on. You know, one of the keys for me is working with an individual and everybody's different. So I can't give a generalized answer to that. So that's how, I mean, I really like to delve into my individual clients, but pressure is really self-induced. And part of the key to that I have found working with people is to how to love the challenge. How do you love the challenge? Love the opportunity of the challenge. And that's the flip side of the same coin of self-induced pressure. Mm -hmm. If you can go out there and yeah, it's hard and yeah, there's pressure and yeah, you want to win, but embrace the challenge, that can really help with the, that, the tension of the pressure that builds. There's actually science around this notion of looking at something as a challenge or a threat. Right. And uh, when we look at things as a threat, we get very animalistic, right? We right. freeze, right. With deer in the headlights, right? right. Um, whereas if we look at it as a challenge, we can go toward it. Right. Um, so I think that makes sense, the notion of, well, thinking about pressure as, well, this is an opportunity and this is a challenge and you know, this is where I want to be probably. But I also think it's interesting, the notion of it being self-induced because of whatever story we're telling ourselves. Uh, right. and, and how that impacts how we how we interpret pressure. Well, uh, well, in golf, you have to really put a free swing on it. You have to just let go. And there's irony in that because you're trying to control, in air quotes, where the ball's going. But I hear over and over again about steering a shot or just, you know, feeling tight or frozen and there's an element of really having to let go. So I often say, you know, free swings to specific targets. So, you know, that free swing is really important. And if you're feeling a lot of pressure, it's really a challenge. I'm also curious to get your thoughts on routine because routine is such a big part of golf specifically, pre-shot routine, pre-performance routine. Um, what are your thoughts on routine and, and how do you work with routine? So I think routine is really, really important. I talk about sometimes I use the analogy of comfort food. You know, a routine in the golf world or m many sports is to help you feel like you're, you are doing the same thing over and over again. So it feels very familiar. So often a theme would be, for a professional golfer or a college golfer, for any golfer, do your routine. Like I said earlier, love the challenge and do the best you can. So routine is really built into there because I just, you know, and 
I, I, I've worked with players that change up their routine all the time. So like I said, I work with the individual. So if that's what they need to do, but I'm a believer in routine really being a supportive element of reaching your goals. And I'll take it outside of golf because you've also worked with some of the best athletes, performers, uh, in the world. Um, I know each person's different, but what are some qualities that make a high performer a high performer from a from a mental standpoint? So I would say a theme, and I, I get asked this pretty often. I would say a positive theme would be self-belief. And there there's just an element that they believe in their skill set, they believe in their preparation. But most of all, they believe in themselves. Any idea how to build that? Well, that's what I spend my day doing. Because I I really believe there can be some emotional blocks to self-belief. And I try to dig deep to see where those started. I, w- one story I have many years ago, so we won't say any names, but somebody I was working with, they had a coach who would tell them, you might not be number one in the world, but you'll you'll at least be number two or three. Hmm. And years later, we worked together for years, he told me this story. And that's exactly what he was. Hmm. He just hadn't, it's like he was holding this deeper message of a coach he very much respected that he might not really ever be number one. And it was like a limiting factor for him. So that's an example of delving deeper to see if there's something in someone's psyche that's holding them back from really where they want to get to. How did that comment help that person? Because they realized that they were holding themselves back from a limited self-belief, which I come across all the time. I would say that's probably a theme in my work with almost everyone I work with. Are you holding on to some limited self-belief about yourself that you can't get to where you want to? And sometimes if we uncover those and reframe them, they're free to get to where they want to be. And especially in the sports world, that self-belief can be knocked down so quickly. Um, What exercises or things do people do to try to you said reframe, but I, I'm more curious about like when they do get knocked down, how do they develop the resilience or the grit to get back up? Well, resilience and grit, I would say, if we're going to talk about different qualities in some of the athletes and performers I've worked with, that would be a theme. So some of that is, you know, I think we're going to learn so much more about genetics in the next 10 years. So some of this genetics, some of this training, some of this is personality, but m- Failure has to teach you how to learn more about yourself. So a lot of what we talk about, because there's a lot of failure in sports and a lot of loss, and it's a way to learn about what you can do better the next time. So we use it as a tool. Failure is a tool. And you said earlier, well, one positive that a lot of these elite performers have is self-belief. And you said, but there's also a negative. Uh, what's the dark side or the negative that comes with elite performance? Hmm. 
Well, I guess I would answer that sometimes the self-induced pressure that we talked about, if they're not excelling to where they actually feel they can get to, that they're pretty hard on themselves, pretty brutal. That tough love that we all talk about, like parenting-wise, a lot of people do that to themselves. Inner inner critic. Inner critic really can be harsh. So that would be a negative. Um, That lack of balance in their lives because they're so one not not one sided but one focused that a lot of the rest of their lives can fall apart that can be a negative um you know maybe lack of awareness in terms of how they're beating down their body or how other people are responding to them that can be a detriment in terms of a team you know if there's not an awareness like in basketball if someone's just not passing a lot and not a team player, but they're so self-driven and so much self-belief, but that can hurt a team. Yeah. And the team dynamics versus individual dynamics are interesting because when I work with golfers, they're motivated very differently than a basketball player. Right. Um, A, what's motivating you? Uh, And then I'll get to my B after that. I won't stack the question. So what's motivating me with what? Yeah, with your work. You know, I just love to see people excel at what they love. I mean, there's nothing that gets me going to see someone feel better. And, you know, I I can just think of a client last week. He's just, so it was a PGA Tour tournament, and he's been struggling and not loving it and hard on himself, all the things we've just been talking about. And through processing what he'd been holding on to and kind of coming at it from the wrong direction, he just freed it up. And he had so much more fun. His results, you know, that's always an interesting question if what I do actually brings results. How do you answer that? Well, then we have to look at what is a result. And, And I would, you know, this guy came in like 20th. So did he want to win? They all want to win. Everybody wants to win. But what we were measuring is his contentment during performance. And he felt way better. So then it's a win-win. You know, does he want to win this week? Of course, everybody wants to win. But he just was enjoying his day better. He, you know, in terms of that loving the opportunity, loving the challenge, that's exactly how he carried himself that week. And he felt better. And he felt excited to move on and continue. It's so cool if you can shift what the framework of success is for an athlete. Right. Because sports specifically are so win-loss driven. Right. And the reality is, as you said earlier, it's it's you're going to fail. And PGA Tour, I mean, to be number one is, I mean, it's – the odds are just so stacked up against you. Right. And so for you to say that, well, I either win the tournament and that's either success. And if I don't, that's failure. Uh, that's a pretty miserable existence to have. You know, it, which is a really great point because I would say I have learned over the years that we have to talk about what is success because almost everyone I work with they just want more. So then you're always on that, 
hamster wheel. You're just always wanting more. So then you're not really appreciating the moment or living in the moment. So on some level, our work is to figure out what are we going for here? Because then somebody could be number 10 in the world or number one in the world, and then they want to keep that number one in the world. So there's just there's just always this fight that can actually turn into a negative. And contentment is such an interesting word because I think people hear contentment and they think complacent, but it's not the same thing. Like they could be content with the way that they're approaching their golf round and then they could spend the next week preparing for the the next round and that could be different. So I'm just curious when you talk about contentment, how do you think about contentment? Well, I think about contentment in terms of, well, everybody's different. So what's contentment to them? Sure. So let's bring it back to me. If I feel for career-wise that I'm facilitating somebody to help to facilitate them in reaching their goals, and we have an hour-long conversation, and I feel that they're enthusiastic and excited to go learn something about themselves then I've done my job. So you use the word facilitating a couple times now. Yeah. Do you consider yourself to be a coach, a teacher, or a facilitator, if you could only pick one? Probably a facilitator. And what does a facilitator do? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I just thought of like, what what does an enzyme do? And I don't even know really what that an enzyme does. But I think an enzyme facilitates things. I, my... My love and my goal is to help someone help themselves. So I think that means I'm facilitating mental movement inside themselves. That's a cool thought. Mental growth inside themselves. I'm not necessarily teaching. I'm not one, you know, I throw out quotes or suggest books, but I'm trying to help someone learn what they already know about themselves and bring out the best of themselves, not place information in their heads. So that's more, that's what I would think of more as a teacher. For sure. So my, see, I believe people have an inner knowing about what makes them tick and how they, what brings out the best of them and even what's holding them back. So my job is a facilitator to, help them unleash that. So let's play that out because, you know, I'm sure you've seen plenty of guys on tour who have seen other people who are more teacher or more coach and they're coming to you. Look, they might be coming to you because they want to better themselves or transform or improve, but they also are coming to you because they're probably saying, hey, I want to go low. Right. How do you balance the desire to go low with your approach to facilitating um, them being their best self or however you think about that? Well, most of the people that would come to me want to go low. Even a CEO, that that's a analogy, you know, going low for a CEO might be, managing their people better or their business is excelling more a golfer or a basketball player we we can you know they they really want to a, attain their 
goals, whether that's world ranking, whether that's greens and regulation, whatever. So I think most athletes feel that they want to unleash what might be holding them back from attaining that. So if they're coming to me, they're usually willing and interested in what might be holding them back. What are, you mentioned them earlier, but what are the main fears or the main things that get in the way? I would say, so let's just go to the golf world for a minute, just because I spend a lot of time there. There's a lot of fear of failure. So what does that look like? Because that's something people talk about a lot, but what does fear of failure look like? So it can go from not reaching someone's expectations they have for themselves. I think with social media and in the golf world and shot tracker, there's a lot of clients that talk to me about how visible they feel and so many people are tracking them. So there's a lot of feeling like they're not reaching others' expectations. And I would say that's a real common theme with most, if not all, my clients. And what's underneath that? You know, it's it's that dynamic between how they see themselves and how they believe in themselves, and then they don't reach that. And then how other people see them, and then they're disappointing them. Mm-hmm. That's a, I, I would say, Brian, that's a pretty common thing. Embarrassment. Embarrassment. Shame. Shame. Yep. And, you know, you, I, I've worked with some of the best athletes in the world, and they feel this. It's such a human quality. Such a human quality. Shame is a, a really relevant human quality. So how do you work with them <laughs> to overcome that? And the reason I ask that is I think fear of embarrassment is under a lot of fear and or shame. And, you know, the, the studies that have been done on what's the biggest fear that people have, they often will say it's public speaking. Uh, that comes in higher than death. And it's pretty mind-blowing if you just try to you know, break that stat down into simple terms or basically saying that more people fear speaking than they do death. I mean, that's, that's pretty massive. Um, so I'm always curious is like, how do you help somebody who's afraid of being embarrassed? Because it sounds like underneath failure is disappointment. And underneath disappointment is really embarrassment on how I'll be perceived uh, by others. Uh, so how do you help? How, how do you facilitate somebody <laughs> if that is a fear for them? So my initial reaction to that is there's a, even at the highest level, I have found that people have this imposter syndrome. Like, are they really as good as everybody thinks they are? So, then that comes back to self-belief. You know, do you trust your preparation? Do you trust that you have the skill set to perform? And I, I would say there's a lot of clients that feel, is their confidence real? Or is it somehow, have they fooled everyone? Which goes back to the shame. So one way to facilitate that is to change the mindset. So are you prepared? 
are you mentally, emotionally believing truly in yourself or is it false belief? Like then we really get into that. And also in performance, are you doing the best you can? Like in that moment, in that moment, are you doing the best you can? And if you really believe that you are, then that's all we can do. Trust, truth, find truth, um, and and that will, I'm going to use the word fight, but that's probably not the right word, um, counteract the imposter potentially. And, you know, it's amazing how many professional athletes carry that. Well, imposter syndrome was based on research done at Harvard, you know, with these kids that get into Harvard and right. they think, well, I snuck in. <laughs> right. I, I don't know why they let me in. And right. the reality is that everyone that got into Harvard, right. you know. And uh, sometimes I feel that, yeah. you know, I've been doing this for 20 years. Like, who am I to be helping a professional athlete perform at their best? I remind myself, well, I'm pretty prepared at this point. I'm really, really, my heart's in it. I'm doing the best I can. And I trust my skill set. So that's fantastic. It's terrific. I'm curious though, on the other, on the flip side of that, which is, you know, you're working with all these individuals, teams, highly competitive people. How do you, Julie, handle the losses? Um, how do you handle the stress or the emotion that comes with uh, working with people because, you know, they have to worry about their own score and that's one, but you have to worry about, it's like having tons of kids. It's like, okay, <laughs> right. you've got an only child. You don't right. have to worry about them coming home at night, right. but now you've got multiples. Um, how do you self help yourself um, and, and make sure that you're not becoming overly emotional with the roller coaster that is sports it's it's just a it's an emotional roller coaster it's exhausting it is well i remember uh i was at the tour championship in atlanta a couple years ago standing next to a well-known swing coach and we were sharing a client so i was the mental coach and he was the swing coach and the the guy was had to make a chip in to win and we're standing there it's a beautiful day it's Five thirty, six o'clock, and he misses the chip. And I feel like I'm stabbed in the gut. Like I cannot believe he just missed the chip. And the swing coach next to me said, looked at me, said, You care that much? Mm. You're upset? You're you're gonna exhaust yourself. Mm. And I and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I realized I was truly upset. And he was acting like he wasn't upset. But what I learned from that experience is I was upset and I embraced that part of me that really cares. So maybe he's got a whole nother thing going and maybe he's not attached. But bottom line, Brian, is I'm attached and I want it for them and I get very involved and it's exhausting and there is a lot of loss. So... You know, I got to work with myself around that. And and I do, but I really want for them and I really care for them and I want the best for them. And it's just who I am. It's interesting as I'm hearing you talk, it's similar. What you have to do for yourself is similar to what you're working with them 
to do. And uh, you have to care. It's like, tell a pro athlete that what they do doesn't matter. Good luck with that. It matters. It matters. It's, it, they care about it. They put in the effort. They put in the work. Tell a salesperson that their work doesn't matter. Like, there's purpose. There's meaning behind it. It's not just a game for them. It's it's a profession, and there's pride, and um, that's why they're at that level. Right. Um, without that, you're screwed. And there's an old adage that says, you know, um, you know, a, a coach. The players don't know. You can't coach a player until they know how much you care. Something along those lines. Right. And so I think I I always struggle with that balance of you know, hey, I care, but. Um, it's is your world. This is, I don't get to sink the putt. I don't get to make the hoop. I don't get to throw the ball. Um, so I can do great work and they can miss the putt and sort of going back to your initial thought of, you know, what is a successful performance and trying to get it away from just the outcome. But the reality is you work in sports, performance matters, results matter. It's, you know, it literally their paycheck is affected by the result. So it's so clear on that. Well, one of the things that I know about myself is I've had loss in my life. I've had failure in my life. And one of the things that helps me facilitate is connecting on a really deep level with what they're going through. And I really care about that. And it's really important. And I think it's one of the reasons I'm successful is because I meet them where they're at and I can feel it and can reflect back to them. And I don't mean I share, a lot of my colleagues share their own personal journeys and stories. I don't do that so much, but I think people feel that I'm seeing them. And that, I think that's helpful. Compassion. Compassion, empathy, understanding. I mean, we're all really going for the same thing. We're all humans searching for the same thing. Which is? Oh, boy, that's a huge question. But self-love, connections, emotional health. So you talk a lot about emotion. Mm -hmm. uh, we certainly talked about mentality, and we've talked about the physical, quote-unquote, grind that comes with the work that you do and, and the work that athletes certainly do. How about spirituality? How, do, how does spirituality play for you? And how does it play within your work? <laughs> well, I have been known to pray for a putt to drop. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who I'm praying to. Um, spirituality. So that kind of speaks to what I mentioned a minute ago is I look at that more as a connectiveness. You know, when I'm walking through my day, just seeing other people, I do feel a sense that we're just all on the same path. So that would be my spirituality. Like, and I feel that with my clients. You know, we're all, we're, we all just want the same things. Is that, and whatever that is, a few things I mentioned earlier. So in terms of their spirituality, I try to meet my clients with where they're at. Some are very religious and, you know, and others aren't. And, you know, I just work with that and how that's important to them. As you've progressed and as your career has gone on, I would imagine the field in 20 years changes, shifts. What are some things you've noticed 
that have changed over the years? Or how have you changed? Either way. Um, well, I've changed a lot in terms of how the careers changed. Why well, don't start with you then? Okay. So, well, all the things that I'm trying to work with in my clients, I've improved on in myself, my self-belief, my skill set, all that. Uh, I've maintained this love of for what I do because I, as I said earlier, I love seeing people reach their goals, their mental goals and their emotional goals and more contentment in their lives. Um, in terms of the sports psychology mental coaching world, less of a stigma, still there. I had someone come up to me in Augusta at the Masters this week and, you know, say, we want to work with you, but we feel like, I feel like it's a weakness. Like, I, I, there's still, there's still that, even though I'm such a believer in this helps people, mental coaching helps people get clarity on their dreams and attaining those dreams. I mean, it's, it's just the farthest thing from a weakness, but it's still there, but it's changing. Um, it's just great to see all these programs popping up around the country and around the world and training people. And, you know, plenty of college kids come up to me and ask me about what I do. And I tell them, I, if you love sports and you love competition and it's the greatest job in the world. So there's, there's a lot more enthusiasm about it. So that's a change. You know, you mentioned sports and you get into sports by happenstance, right? It, it just sort of happens because somebody's coming to you for something else. How do you, is there any difference for you when you're working with someone in the corporate world compared to when you're working with an athlete? I still go back to people are people. Yeah. And if someone from the corporate world's hiring me, then they still are trying to excel at what they do. Uh, they're trying to bring m most of them, the men and women who are the corporate in the corporate world who are hiring me are trying to uh, increase their management skills, their relationship skills, and they're trying to excel at what they do. They're trying to, I'm trying to say it in a positive way, but there's a lot of fatigue in the corporate world. And we look at energy drains and I do that with my clients too, you know, Last night I had some I have a little thing I call brain drain and they write down what they're holding on to any thoughts that they it could be they have to call their father or it could be they have to pay their mortgage or it's probably not that but they you know get anything that's off their brain that's not letting them free up in their performance. So that would be something I do with CEOs quite a bit. Like what's holding them back? What? How are they wasting energy? Super cool. How do you think about energy? Well, I know that, I know one thing that can, well, encourage proper use of energy is not having energy drains. So that's something we talk a lot about in my work with clients is what's, what's fatiguing them mentally? What are they holding on to that's not helping them excel at what they want to do? 
And that's true for all of us. It's interesting. I think there's there's a study done that found that 50% of employees in the U.S. feel burnt out. I guess crazy number. And um, you, know, you think about that in, in the sports world. You think about that. Certainly, we have high school kids that get burnt out. Uh, I work with college athletes. You see them get burnt out. Uh, in the corporate world, I mean, we were talking about investment banking before we turned on the mics. And, you know, I know people that are in that space and they basically try to burn you out. Um, if you're working with a client who seems burnt out, what are some ways you try to help them? Well, we look at way, ways that they're holding on to negativity. Like I just had a, a conversation with somebody about, I mean, this whole social media stuff. And somebody might post something and they might get a thousand positive responses, but they might get 20 really nasty negative responses and they hurt and they hold on to that. So one of the things that I talk about in performance is ways they're holding on to negativity, old stuff with their families, current stuff they're creating in their lives. So energy drains because that brings negativity and then that brings fatigue. And some of us just have habitual stuff that we do in our lives that drain us. And, you know, when we talk about rejuvenation, recovery for an athlete or for any of us, a lot of that is learning how to live a more hopeful, energized, clean's not the right word, but just focused lifestyle that doesn't have a lot of negativity in it. Yeah. I had uh, Michael Gervais on the podcast who right. we've talked about before. Right. And he said something that the Western world has taken this approach of you have to do more to be more. Right. And he said it, it's it's really an issue because people just keep doing, you mentioned the hamster wheel earlier, like to keep doing more and hoping that <laughs> that'll lead to being, but it doesn't always work that way. Right. Well, that's where the this idea of meditation, I'm sometimes reluctant to call it that, just learning how to be and not have constant whatever in somebody's life, like really learning how to quiet down, that's a skill set in performance. Like how, how do we learn how to clear our brain from the noise? And it's, it's so tricky for athletes because they do have to do more, right? Like they do have to perfect their swing. They do have to go – you know, work on a new type of shot that they want to hit. They do have to, if they, you know, if they missed a bunch of putts at the masters, they got to go work on putting. And so I'm, I'm just, the, the last thought I had was I'm curious how you work with athletes who might be perfectionist and how that helps them. And certainly like, I think one of the things we haven't done a great job of saying is like, the people you're working with are at the tip of the arrow. They're at the top of the pyramid. Yeah. A lot of them. There's some that aren't, but yeah. you get to see a lot of people that have made it, quote unquote. And so what has gotten them there, you know, has worked. Um, so, you know, how, A, do you help them shift when what's gotten them where they are might not get them to where they want to go? How, how does that even unlock uh, for for a performer? Well, in, in the personal growth movement with an athlete or with anybody, their priorities might change too as they go along. So what 
is success 10 years ago might not be success now. And so we talk a lot about that. Like what, what are your goals right now? And what does success mean for you? And as somebody, you know, that intensity when you're younger is amazing force. And a lot of men and women that I work with feel they don't have that intensity anymore. Like I'll talk to a PGA player, LPGA player, and they'll say, you know, Thursday morning when I tee off, I'm kind of bored. Like I don't have that intensity, but of course they want to win on Sunday. So their goal, their personal goals might've changed. So we have to look at that. And, you know, in terms of perfection, there's no such thing. Mm. And it's really about back to how we started this conversation, finding balance and, and finding one's personal goals to see if you're meeting those. And like I said, everybody's different. I deal with everybody differently. Some people like to write out goals and some people write something on their golf ball before they hit it for a goal for the round. And, you know, maybe we have a free throw goal, like, you know, they're trying to get that free throw percentage up. And so I, I, I actually like working with goals to help people figure out really where they're trying to get to. Like, what does success mean that moment, this week, next month, this year, the next five years, the next 10 years? Yeah, establish the vision or the destination and then work on, all right, well, what is the process going to give you the best chance of That's get, right. getting there? And there's no perfection. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think what I'm curious about is, I agree, there is no such thing as perfection. And... So therefore, there's no such thing as a perfectionist. However, I wonder what striving for that is or does in preparation and in practice. And, you know, um, if you're trying to acquire a skill and improve, um, you know, in, in your training, what does that look like? Well, preparation is just such a key. Because if you're coming to the moment, the moment, whatever that moment is for you, that performance moment, you want to feel like you've done everything you can to prepare for that moment. That might be a college student taking an exam. That might be someone who's public speaking. You know, a lot of, I do talk to people who are public speaking and, you know, one of, one of the suggestions I have is your story is your story. So speak from that story. And the way you prepare that is to just know and believe your story and speak from the heart. In terms of Augusta, Georgia at the Masters, have they done everything to prepare mentally, course management-wise, skill set-wise to prepare for that moment? So prep is huge, huge. And I, you know, it's, it's a challenge to create the room in your life to do that, but it's really important. Yeah, that's the doing part. And that's the doing part. You got to do in order to be. Right. And I then, but it. that also helps with that imposter thing we were talking before. Because if you're truly prepared, then it's you. Yeah. And you've, you've created the space for you to excel. Super cool. So I want to just end with a massive thank you. So for those that don't know, I wouldn't be talking into this microphone if it wasn't for Julie. And that's not hyperbole. That is fact. 
So gosh, probably 10 years ago. Was it 10 years? Something like that. Yeah. 10, and, you know, it's longer than that. It's, I have to think about how old I am. Probably 12 years ago, uh, Julie and I sat down at a cheesecake factory in Chevy Chase. I guess it's DC. Is it across the border? It's like right on the border. It would be DC. It's DC. Yeah. <laughs> so, and. I'll always remember that. Yeah. I walk up this spiral staircase yep. and Julie's sitting there. And we sit down and, and she just puts me through a couple of things. She says, hey, look around the room. Or I bet if I had you close your eyes, you'd have a good sense of what's going on in this room. And there were things that you said to me that day like that, that stuck with me. And at the time, I was interested in working in sales and, and making some money and wasn't interested in going back to school. But that meeting always stuck with me. And since then, Julie has just been a complete mentor, a coach, a facilitator, uh, all three of them, a, t a teacher, and somebody who has just completely guided my career. And so uh, I was so excited to chat with you today on the mic to share what I've been able to do over the past 12 years with you, with the world. And hopefully they got some nuggets of wisdom uh, and made them think a little bit. And this is different for Julie because Julie is usually, I'll go and have lunch with Julie and I feel like I will have said 90% of the words in the conversation and she'll do 10% of the asking. And I think that's one of the things that make you really special at your job and a special mentor and someone who I'm just extremely grateful to have in my life. So I just want to thank you. And hopefully everybody, we did, we did Julie justice uh, in this conversation and hopefully everybody that's listening uh, got a sense of it as well. I want to give you a megaphone to promote anything that you want to promote. And so it's really up to you. People have done all kinds of different things, but I want to use this platform to help put a megaphone to anything that you're interested in promoting. You know, I love the opportunity and the you asking me to put a megaphone here, but I think what I've come to love about what I do is I stay under the radar. And I think that just really works for me. I mean, if somebody out there wants to really take the time to self-reflect and learn about themselves, that's that's what I love to do. And what I've learned is, you know, working with these high-level athletes, these men and women, is very confidential. And I just love facilitating someone attaining their dreams. And that's my megaphone. Like I, I'm, I, I just wish us all the curiosity to figure yourselves out. Okay, so I'm going to give a megaphone to Julie. Go ahead. So first of all, their website is capeperformance.com. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Uh, so we can start there. Okay. And, and then and we'll put this in the show notes. And the second thing that I'm absolutely going to give a megaphone to is Hannah. Okay. Oh, that's a great idea. Right? I, so, I didn't know if that was against the rules. There not. are no rules. It's I, my freaking podcast. I, I do what I want. I have a daughter who's a rock star. <laughs> so talk about the rock star. And, and Noah, who is, who is we, ha, we go He's back. He's a great guy, Noah. Noah and I go back a long way. He put my hat in a toilet when he was like six years old. <laughs> um, but, but talk about what Hannah's up to because uh, I think at one point, I remember you sent like a video out and I watched it. I was like... You know, you, let me preface this. When a parent sends something out about their child, you often have hesitation, right? Like, okay, well, they're watching like there's this. There's an element of bragging. Yeah, or, or just like they're not, 
<laughs> they're not realistic. Right. right, right. <laughs> but Hannah is a rock star. Yeah. Super talented. Uh, like their music is emotional, soulful. And I say that without her being my daughter. So I'm giving it my complete uh, what a, uh, recommendation or whatever you want to call it. But um, yeah, tell us about where people can learn about what Hannah's up to. So Hannah Ellian, my daughter, and J.J. Mitchell met at Wesleyan College. Uh, neither studied music except just kind of on the side and decided to start a band called The Overcoats. And I think it's been three years now. They have an album. Their first album's called Young. They've toured all over the country. They're getting incredible accolades. They, I think, I'm pretty sure that NPR voted their album top 10 album of 2017 or one of the top 10 albums of 2017. They're presently in LA recording or finding a producer for their second album. And she just loves it, and it's amazing. I try to see her as often as possible on stage. They sell out many, many of their shows. And it's just so cool to see both of my kids just having that self-belief, being committed to their growth, preparation, and trust in their skill set. Like they are living, both of them are living a lot of what I believe in. And Hannah you know, to see her on stage and just loving what she does. And, you know, I just support her and doing whatever she loves and finding the path that she loves. And right now she's right where she's supposed to be. And the band's called Overcoats and they're, they're great. They're fat. They write their own music, write their own words and they're on, find them on Spotify and iTunes and I'll certainly give her a megaphone. That's for cool. sure. <laughs> and Noah, her other son, is one yes. of my favorite kids on the planet. I'm going to call him a kid if he's 70 years old. I'll I think he's 22 kid. now. Probably. Yeah, he's a kid. <laughs> and uh, great golfer. And, uh, you know, I think going to work in finance in some capacity. So shout out to Noah as well. Graduating Tufts in six weeks. Yeah, Julie makes dumb, dumb kids apparently. So, um, <laughs> Julie, thank you for the time. Thanks, Bryce. Great to be with you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I would say I have learned over the years that we have to talk about what is success because almost everyone I work with, they just want more. So then you're always on that hamster wheel. You're just always wanting more. So then you're not really appreciating the moment or living in the moment. So on some level, our work is to figure out what are we going for here? Because then somebody could be number 10 in the world or number one in the world, and then they want to keep that number one in the world. So there's just, there's just always this fight that can actually turn into a negative.